By now, you've all heard of Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0, the latest book published by Mama Jumbo Shrimp. It's more than just another wine book. The fully updated second edition was inspired by students of the Vinitali International Academy and painstakingly reviewed and revised by an expert panel of certified Italian wine ambassadors from across the globe. The book also includes an edition by Professore Attilio Scienza, Italy's leading vine geneticist. The benchmark producer's feature is a particularly important aspect of this revised edition. The selection makes it easier for our readers to get their hands on a bottle of wine that truly represents a particular grape or region. To pick up a copy, just head to Amazon.com or visit us at MamaJumboShrimp.com. Welcome to Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen on Italian Wine Podcast. I'm delighted to announce an important collaboration with Academy de Van Library, one of the world's most important wine book publishers, whose authors are amongst the most influential and entertaining in the world of wine writing today. These are writers who I've long admired, so it will be fascinating to chat with them and hear their stories. I hope you will join me. Welcome to Wine, Food, and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Today, it is my great pleasure to continue our special sub-series in collaboration with Academy Devan Library, one of the world's leading wine book publishers. My guest today is Peter Vinding, one of the world's leading winemakers who has brought his talents and vision all around the world and who today joins us from his home in Sicily. Peter is the author of Viking in the Vineyard, Stories from a Revolutionary Winemaker, published by Academy Devan Library. It's a fascinating and rich book that is part memoir, full of keenly observed personal stories telling not only Peter's own journey through wine, but also something of how wine itself has evolved over the past 50 years or so. Peter, thanks so much for being my guest today. I'm enjoying your book immensely. How are you today? Thank you very much. We are pruning, actually, and uh, it's going very well. You know, we have bush vines here, so we prune to two eyes. We don't leave very much wood on the vines. We prune quite hard. It's quite backbreaking pruning bush vines. Yeah, it is, but um, now we actually use sort of brick pruning shears, and so you stand up and do it. Oh, okay. Great fun. Yes. Now, Peter, your book, you say at one point, is a story about the joy of growing vines and making wines. Let's start at the beginning of your wine journey. What brought you into wine in the first place? You write that you were studying French literature at the Sorbonne, but a journey to the south of France changed all that. Yes, it did. When we were passing Burgundy, I saw these bush vines, and I fell in love with them immediately. I was rather young, I suppose, uh, but uh, I suddenly felt that it was the future for me, and it was quite uh, emotionally. I really wanted to be a forester, but my family told me I was too stupid. Um, I'm sure they were right. And, um, and that, so seeing those small trees, combined with the idea that you could actually drink the produce of them and enjoy it, something we did at home very much, I think, made me feel that that perhaps should be my future. 
I'm, I'm very glad to say I never regretted it. <laughs> well, I think the uh, world of wine would be very disappointed if you'd gone in a different direction, which you may well have done, I suppose. What was it most of all that, that made you have that, that, was it the romance, the beauty of the countryside, the taste of the wines themselves, or all of this? I don't know. You know, yes, well, we were brought up, uh, I was brought up with, in a house that, where wine was part of every day. And my, my stepfather bought a hogshead of, of Dance Bash every year. And then at special occasions, we drank lots of other wines. And of course, that installed uh, an interest in it because it was um, part of one's upbringing and culture, I suppose. And my grandfather liked burgundies. And so, so really, I had a, a taste of both worlds. In, in those days, I don't think anybody considered drinking wines from anywhere else. Maybe, maybe German wines. Yes, absolutely. But, uh, apart from that, it, it was not really Comilfo. And, and you were growing up in Denmark. Yes. Part of, part of my, my use was spent in Denmark. Yeah. On an, on another trip, you described traveling by boat from Europe down the west coast of Africa, drinking wine on the, on the uh, sea journey and eventually arriving in South Africa where you had family. You say that you had the opportunity to visit the Cape and vineyards, including Gruta Constantia, which of course produced one of the legendary sweet dessert wines. And that sparked uh, the first opportunity to really consider making wine. Yeah, that, that was, uh, it was very beautiful. Um, I don't know, I read, when, when I was in Paris, I, uh, I read a book by Evelyn Walk called When the Going is Good or Was Good. And it's all about his travels in Africa. And I got bitten by it. And so somehow I'd inherited a Chinese room from my aunt which is a very, very beautiful things, and I really loved it. But I was told by my mother, if I wanted to go around Africa, maybe I should sell some of them. And even in those days when there was scarce interest in, in oriental things, uh, they bought in quite a lot of money. And so I was able to take a, a owner's cabin on a freighter and sail around the west of Africa down to, down to the Cape. And my stepfather's family, part of them, uh, they immigrated to the Cape, I suppose, a couple of generations before. And so they took me out and showed me Grote Constantia, which is this beautiful, beautiful area and be beautiful, beautiful house, which incidentally, when I worked for the Experimental Institute years later, they offered me the post as uh, running it. And so it, 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 it was something, just the memory of that beauty and that beautiful place made me decided that, yes, this it had to be wine somehow. And you carried on that journey, but then eventually decided to return to South Africa without actually a job, but with the intention to find a job and begin learning about making wine. Yes, everybody told me I wouldn't get a job. Uh, that alone is enough to spur somebody like me on, because I like challenge. And uh, and in fact, when when we got out there, uh, Susie, my wife, had a job at Groot Skuret. She was a very highly qualified uh, operations sister uh, and had, in fact, assisted at the first kidney transplants at Cambridge with, with Roy Kahn. So she was very, very much uh, uh, in demand, I would say. And she got a job immediately at Groot Skuret. Um And so for a couple of weeks, she was there. 
while I was trying to look for a job. And uh, funny enough, the man who refused me a job put me on on the track of uh, Sidney Back, who owned a vineyard out in Pal, and also and also had a piggery. And I I, I got the job because. Um, part of my education was agriculture in Denmark, and uh, in fact, I hoped I would never again have to tend pigs. But there, there you were. <laughs> there, it's a very strange, very strange way of starting a life in wine. But um, in the weekends, uh, I I looked out for the pigs at Baxburg uh, because the the manager uh, had the weekend off, and and that was fine. It, it was it was really very interesting. I spent six months there, and and only left the place because they got a German winemaker who needed my house, or the house there I've been put into. And um, and so after that, uh, I actually got something much more interesting in a way that uh, I got a job with the Experimental Research Institute in Stellenbosch, uh, and and here uh, uh, I think I was. Extremely lucky and happy to work for people like Pongratz, who I became his assistant, and he was and is one of the great, great figures in viticulture. And so I, I had an enormous grounding by that. And then later, I worked at uh, what is now known as Rustenburg, and I became assistant manager there, and both vineyards and and uh, cellar. And uh, and worked with a man called Reg Nicholson, who used to own Skungusik, part of Rustenburg, and um, he was a wonderful mentor. So I, I've been very lucky. I had some extremely interesting, intelligent, and inspiring people to work for. What would you say some of the um, most important lessons you learned? Uh, from your experiences in South Africa were that you were able to then bring to other places? Well, I, as a matter of fact, in 73, I, I went to Bordeaux and I saw how they pruned. And they pruned very severely. And I brought that habit back with me to Rustenburg. And so and people accused me of being brutal to the vines. In fact, we made the 74, which which was a beautiful wine, uh, very concentrated, and and subsequently fetched enormous prices at those auctions they had. But um, it taught me to be more precise in the vineyard. And um, and in '74, incidentally, I got an offer from from uh, Martin Bamford, uh, IDV or Gilby's, uh, who owned Chateau Luden in Medoc, and. Uh, and having spoken to Reg Nicholson, I accepted the offer. Uh, and in fact, I was very happy to. And so the whole family departed for France. Uh, I, I must say I'm very Francophile. Uh, France means a lot to me, the culture and everything else. So I was very happy to go there. So that was the start of another very important chapter in in your life. You stayed there for a quarter of a century, I think. Uh, I think in some point in the book you say, Bordeaux is the mecca of wine. Why do you say that? And was that always your hope and intention to end up there? No, but uh, <laughs> when I told Rich Nicholson, he said, "You know, if you are and you love wine, if you if you are in wine, you have to go through Bordeaux at some stage other than your life." 
And I think Bordeaux is a place that one always comes back to. There's no doubt about it. So it was a wonderful challenge. Uh, and it was, it was really great. Uh, I loved our years there. Yes, you write about Chateau Loudin, which must have been very exciting. This is in the, is that Saint Estephe in the Medoc? No, it's further up. It's, it's actually at, uh, Lisbar. It's close to Lisbar. It's, it's the first chateau in the Medoc, not Old Medoc, Med Medoc. But it's, it's quite close to Saint Estephe. In fact, we lived in Saint Estephe. And you write about, um, challenging times, but also wonderful times and, and experiences and meals and meeting some of the great characters of the world of wine. Yes, I was very lucky, actually. Um, Luden was a meeting place, of course, for the English wine trade. And uh, some of the most interesting people in the trade was the English wine trade. There's no doubt about it. The, the whole uh, culture of wine and so on is, is in London, I think, or in England. It comes to its best there. It's funny, funny. Uh, the other day we were in Paris and we spoke to a sommelier who was Italian, who had worked in London, who now was the sommelier at a great, uh, great, great restaurant in, in Paris. And he told me that the London time was for him as a wine man the most interesting because people understood everything. All the register of wine from Sherry's to Port, Madeira and so on. They understood, whereas in France, they were going to only talk about the French wines. And I think there's something about that. Yes, that's true. Now, Peter, you moved from Chateau Ludin into the Grave, uh, first at, at Chateau Raoul, and you were making both great white wines as well as red. Is that right? Yeah. Different challenges. Yes. Uh, well, it's two disciplines, uh, completely different disciplines. And uh, my great luck was that the Raoul was being bought by Peter Fox and Len Evans. Len Evans was quite a character in the Australian, in the Australian wine world. And he, in fact, he, he taught the Australians to drink wine. He, he was the most amusing person. Um, but we didn't always see eye to eye. That's true. In any case, he got me to Australia and Brian Crozer taught me to make white wine. And he made me see a lot of things which were sheer logic. And uh, I brought them back to Bordeaux and and changed the winemaking, white winemaking of Bordeaux. I think I can say that quite clearly. In what, in what way? Fresh, clean, fruity wines. Very clean. That had not been the case before. And bringing more Semillon into the, into the blend? Well, Semillon happened to be the variety which everybody hated, uh, but it was a variety that was grown at Raoul, so I had to make do with it. And I found that if you protected the must and 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 looked after it, it would make absolutely beautiful wines. Uh, another thing you um, you talk about is uh, championing the use of indigenous yeasts and demonstrating that the same grapes fermented with different yeasts result in completely different wines. Yes, this was this was something that started already at the Experimental Institute in Stellenbosch, and I uh, and of course in in fact it started at dinner table at home. Uh, when my parents got uh, two of the Leoville's out, uh, Leoville Lascaz and Leoville Poiffer, they lived in the same courtyard, uh, and the wines were made in the outbuildings opposite each other, and the wines were very different. Um, and that made me believe that every vineyard has its own yeast. Uh, and and this was something I proved organoleptically by, by fermenting three chateaux in the same must. 
in two in barrels, I think it was. And, um, and everybody could immediately put the finger on which chateau it was. And this interested a friend of mine, Denis Dubordieu. And so he started a yeast laboratory in Bordeaux and he proved my theory was right scientifically. So now, now there's no discussion. It is so that every vineyard has its own signature via the yeast, the indigenous yeast. Well, that's fascinating. Would you say that that yeast is something of the soul of, of each vineyard? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's, it's a very, very important part. It's, it's a very important part of our lives, too, I think. And after Raoul, uh, where did you go then? Then Raoul was sold when Peter, Fo when Peter Fox died. And so I went on and we bought with a few friends um, Chateau de Landias in the Garve. I already owned myself a small property called Domaine Lagarde, which I had a lot of fun with. And we sold all the wine to Sunday Times Wine Club and, and had some lovely times with it, yes. And so in, in Landias, I continued the work, but uh, Landias was a very cold part, so I realized it would be a good place for white wine. And, and indeed, we became known for our whites. I remember Corny and Barrow selling 30,000 bottles of our white every year. And, and it was it was such fun. Wow! No, the wine trade was completely different. Now, uh, an interesting chapter as well uh, relates to how, after the fall of the Iron Curtain, you turned your attention to one of Europe's greatest dessert wines, Tokai, a wine that at once graced the tables of Europe's royalty and even the czars of Russia. But under communism, of course, this historic vineyard, this great wine zone, had fallen into disrepair and decline. After the fall of the Iron Curtain, you drove out there to visit some of the state cellars. Tell us about uh, your uh, your adventure in Tokai and your involvement with your great friend Hugh Johnson. Italian Wine Podcast. If you think you love wine as much as we do, then give us a like and a follow anywhere you get your pods. Yes, it was, it was um, another challenge, I would say, and quite a big one. But imagine if somebody asked you to come and see if you were interested in buy some, some of the parts of Burgundy, because it's more or less what happened. Tokai was incredibly famous before the war and, um, and made some beautiful wines, and all that disappeared during the communism and during the Soviet occupation. And so they forgot everything. They forgot where the Grand Cru were. They forgot the climat. They forgot absolutely everything. And they made really boring wines. They moved them from the hills down into the valley of, of Valley. And they, they, uh, they used to have up to 20,000 vines a hectare. They then degraded themselves down to 3,000 uh, vines a hectare and made something that was practically undrinkable. Um, but we went up there and I managed to persuade Hugh that this was a course worth taking. And so we, um, we had to dig very far in order to understand what was happening. Very luckily, I found a book in a bookshop in, in Buddha, uh, one afternoon. It was in Latin and it was a, a description of, of, uh, actually it was the 1700 classification. Every single vineyard was noted for its good or bad uh, 
qualities, and um, it made it much easier for us then to go on selecting the right pieces of, of vineyard land up on the hills and replant and so on. In order to understand how to make how to make it and so on, I have to speak to a lot of the old owners who were living in Vienna, who were living outside of, of uh, in Germany or wherever they were living. And uh, they, they remembered um, very well how to make the wine and so on. And um, with the Putonios and using the Azu grapes. Yes, and the base wine from previous years, which was such a joy, because when you have the Azu berries, you can then uh, you can then see, you can feel the taste of the Azu and say this will go very well with that and that base wine. And in the northern parts of of Tokai, uh, they didn't make very good Azu, but they made lovely, uh, light, elegant base wines. So you can imagine. It was such a joy to do that until some uh, some modernist, I suppose, uh, decided that he would ferment the two together. That was not at all the case in the old Tokais, and it was, and the results in my mind is not half as good. They they had a tendency of shooting themselves in the foot all the time, which is great shame. Well, what a what an amazing project! And the Royal Tokai Company was the result. A company that's still going now. Oh, it's doing very well. And Hugh said it will take forty years or thirty or forty years before it will do well. But he was absolutely right, and that's where we are now. Oh, how wonderful! I, I have nothing to do with it anymore, unfortunately. But but I still have some shares. There, there was one very amusing moment when we went, my wife and I went to Madeira. Uh, I, I, will, I will say that I couldn't have done any of my wine sing without my wife. Uh, and that is a very important part. But we went to Madeira and um, to study the Estufagum du Sol, which means the, the breaking of the protein chain in the wine by heat. Uh, because you could not, you could not find these wines. They were too, they, they were too sick, too fatty. It was impossible to find them. So you had to break this chain, which rather otherwise turn the white wine cloudy, uh, by some other means. And that used to be in the old days, the heat of the summer. And, um, and that explained a lot of small cellars above ground. So people will move the wines up during the summer. Also, something they'd forgotten when we were there, uh, and then the protein chain would be broken, and they would move them down for the winter again. And they had to keep them for several years. So at the end, they succeeded. But while we were in Madeira, because incidentally, Madeira, of course, makes some beautiful wines, uh, we were offered um, a wonderful uh, bodega, and uh, I bought back the suggestion we should make the Royal Tokai and Madeira Company. It was very well received, but unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately it didn't happen. It would have been a marvelous thing to do. Yes, the Madeiras are some of the greatest wines. I, I love them. Yes, exactly. No, absolutely. Very, very underrated and, and unknown. Yes, absolutely. But Peter, instead of going to Madeira, you went to Sicily instead. I know um, a man called Giorgio Franchetti, Andrea Franchetti's uh, uncle, Andrea from uh, who, who had, was a sort of student of mine when he was young. And uh, and we discussed, and he'd bought this vineyard in in Tuscany, and um, 
And so he, he very often came to Bordeaux and we had some great conversations and lots of fun. Um, and then I met his uncle. We, we moved first to, to a northern part of Italy and, um, and really it was, I, I didn't like it at all. And so, uh, we moved to Rome because I did a lot of consultancies all over the world. And in Rome, um, we met Giorgio Franchetti, the uncle of Andrea, uh, who was a fantastic personality and who loved Sicily. And he said to me, you, you would be so happy if you moved to Sicily. And I thought that's the end of the world, but why not give it a try? And so Andrea and I and, um, and uh, Peter Sisek, uh, we decided between us it would be fun to make a little experiment on the Etna. I mean, the Edna was totally unknown then. This is about, what, 20 years ago. It was 99, to be exact. And so we went to the Edna, and the idea was to find some of these small vineyards that are sort of built in an amphitheater way with old vines and, and just make a wine there. But uh, as, as time progressed, uh, uh, Andrea bought a huge estate and planted it up very beautiful. And... Um, it, it was a lovely piece of work, but it was quite clear that we could not go on the way we wanted to do it. So Peter went back to Spain and I went down the Black Mountain, as they call it. And I had lunch with a friend and he said, uh, uh, would you consider making some wines with me? And I said, no, not another Italian. It's impossible. I can't. <laughs> and he was an extraordinary kind and wonderful person. And, um, and we did make um, a cooperation. He was the money bags, I was the winemaker, and the Danish friend was the distributor. So it really worked extremely well. And uh, we had some very happy years together. And uh, unfortunately, now he's no longer, but he was a real gentleman, and it was a pleasure to work with him. Was that the start of Monte Carubo? Yeah, it was, because one day he called me and he said, Peter, I'm standing on the land you will buy. <laughs> and and I flew out uh, the next day, and it wasn't that place, but it was one a few kilometers down the road, and and then started all the fun uh, getting it. It was a completely wild, abandoned piece of land with a few with a few almond trees and uh, uh, and a very very old, totally neglected olive grove but um, full of cliffs and things. But I thought, my God, it had a view over the Ionian Sea, the Bay of, of uh, Augusta. It had a beautiful cold breeze, and, and I fell in love with it. The next thing was a little more difficult, I suppose. I, I feared. And so I took Susie, my wife, out to show, show her. And lo and behold, she loved it as well. And so that was our future. <laughs> My goodness. And what year was that, Peter? We hope you've enjoyed this special sub-series in collaboration with Academy Devan Library. If you visit their website, academydevanlibrary.com, they are offering a discount of £5 on the purchase of books by the authors we've interviewed, including Oz Clark, Hugh Johnson, Fiona Morrison, Peter Vinding Deers, and Andrew Jefford. Just use the ADVL coupon code upon checkout with the code ITALIANWINE. That's all caps. And that was in uh, 2005, we actually bought the place 
And we started, then I borrowed the money from a Danish friend. I didn't have a penny. I borrowed the money from a Danish friend. And then when I paid him back in 2010, it took me five years to pay him. Then, uh, then we planted the vineyard and uh, we built a house. Okay. And this is uh, the, the Monte Carubo uh, winery where you actually, as you say, you write that you were starting from completely virgin soil that had never had vines on it before. So you could really put all of the things you had learned the um, over a life in wine and really plant the vineyard exactly as you wanted. Why did you choose Sierra? Ah, yes. Um, everybody says why. Um, we had already tried with Nero Davla that everybody was talking about. But Nero Davla will never ripen in this place. Um, Nero Davla is very good down south in Pacino and those places. But, but here it doesn't fully ripen. Also, uh, it doesn't really make the kind of wines I like. Uh, I like elegant wines. And uh, uh, the Syrah could do that for me. Not any old Syrah. As we were about to plant and so on, we might as well go the whole hog, I thought. So I got some Marsal selections of Syrah from Hermitage, from some friends there, and uh, and they worked out extremely well. In fact, they make beautiful wines. The problem here in Sicily is that um, nobody really has scientifically done viticulture, and so a lot of th- there's been no selection, no careful taking care of of vines. Uh, they're very good uh, wine growers, but they don't they didn't really they were only interested in big yields because big yields uh, something they could sell the bulk wine, which was then exported out of the island. So very few people until well, 20, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, made any any extraordinary wines. I, I will say there were a few who made some wonderful wines, of course, but they were far and few between. And now, uh, now everybody has moved up to the Etna, and they're very happy there. And I wish them all the luck possible. But uh, and and they're beginning to make good wines. There, there are some that are making really, really, really good wines up there, and that's a joy. Yes, indeed. Now, Peter, you're hailed as a revolutionary winemaker, yet in a sense, I feel that at Monte Carubo, you've returned to wine in pretty much its purest form with bush training, biodynamic cultivation, your use, of course, of indigenous yeast. Is that something that's fair to say? Yeah, I think respect for what you're doing is is the word, really. I, I was never interested in, I, unfortunately, I'm not very good at money, you know. So, but I'm very interested in quality. <laughs> it's not often the two hang together, but the, the wines we made here really were remarkable. And so we, we, uh, we were able to get the right price from them from the very start. And, and that has helped. That's helped us building this place. It's helped us building the cellar. Everything else has been paid for by the people who've been drinking our wines and who somehow I've got become faithful clients. I'm very happy about that. I haven't had a chance to sample your wines or taste them myself, but I've read rave reviews and uh, they are so highly regarded. So I hope I can pay a visit to you yes. sometime in the near future. Now, Peter, you, you say we began at 200 miles an hour, that trip down to the south of France, and our lives seem to have continued at the same pace ever since. 
But after that lifetime of travel and wine, it seems you've found your home in Sicily. And I'd just like to finish with a, a quote from the book. Sicily is all about humanity, faithfulness, good friendships, and honor. It can be tough and raw, and it is not for the faint-hearted. But if you take on the challenge you are given here, the island opens its arms and envelops you in its spirit. I think you have enveloped Sicily with your extraordinary spirit. Peter, it's been a really fascinating whirlwind overview of some of the many and exciting wine journeys you have enjoyed during a life in wine in South Africa, Bordeaux, Hungary, and now Sicily. Viking in the Vineyard is a fabulously rich, beautifully written book that gives insight into your richly lived life and your incredible achievements. It's published by the Academy Devan Library, and for our listeners to our program, the publisher is offering a discount, details of which are found in the notes attached to wherever you get your pods. Peter, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I hope we meet sometime in the future, and I wish you all the best. Thank you, Mark, and I'm looking forward to seeing you here. I'm looking forward to it too. Thank you, Peter. All the best, and have a great day. Same to you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Please remember to like, share and subscribe right here or wherever you get your pods. Likewise, you can visit us at italianwinepodcast.com. Until next time, chin chin.